which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. does long for us to draw near to him. He's drawn near to us. In fact, he, he, uh, he says he would reside in our hearts should we have him. A guy named Robert Munger, 1954, wrote an illustration for a sermon, Presbyterian pastor. And uh, as happens many times, I can't say it any better than he does. So I'm going to read it to you. It's a story about God living in our hearts. And it's a little longer than what I might typically read to you, but um, you guys can handle it. Not every congregation could, but you could. You guys. Robert Munger put Christ living in his heart this way. One evening, I invited Christ into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not a spectacular emotional thing, but very real. It was at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness, and he filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I had never regretted opening the door to Christ, ever will, not into eternity. This, of course, is the first step in making the heart Christ's home. He has said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. If you're interested in making your life an abode of the living God, let me encourage you to invite Christ into your heart, and he will surely come. But after Christ entered my heart, and in the joy of this new relationship, I said this to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down in here and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you, Lord. Let me show you around and introduce you to the various features of the home that you may be more comfortable and that we may have fuller fellowship together. He was very glad to come and, of course, and happier still to be given a place in my heart. The first room that I took him to was my study, the library of my heart. Let's call it the study of the mind. Now, in my home, this room is the mind And it is very small. It's got thick walls. But it's an important room. In a sense, it is the control room of the house. He entered with me and looked around at the books and the bookcases and the magazines upon the table and the pictures on the walls. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had not felt badly about this before. But now that he was there looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books that his eyes were too pure to behold. There was a lot of trash and literature on the table that a Christian had no business reading, and as for the pictures on the walls, those imaginations and thoughts of my mind, these were shameful. I turned to him and I said, Master, I know that this room needs a, a radical alteration. Will you help me? Will you help me make it right? Make it what it ought to be? To bring every thought into captivity for you? Surely, he said. Gladly. Will I help you? First of all, take all the things that you're reading and looking at, which are not helpful, pure, good, and true, and throw them out. Now, put on the empty shelves, the books of the Bible. Fill the library with scriptures and meditate on them day and night. 
As for the pictures on the walls, you're going to have some difficulty controlling these images. But here's an aid. He gave me a full-size portrait of himself. Hang it centrally, he said, on the wall of your mind. And I did. And I've discovered through the years that when my thoughts are centered upon Christ himself, his purity and power cause impure thoughts to back away. So he has helped me to bring my thoughts into captivity. May I suggest to you, if you have difficulty with this little room of the mind, that you bring Christ in there. Pack it full with the word of God. Meditate on it and keep it. Keep it before the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the study, we went into the dining room. The room of my appetites and my desires. Now, this was a very large room. I spent a good deal of time in the dining room and much effort in satisfying my wants. And I said to him, Jesus, this is my, my favorite room, maybe. I'm quite sure you'll be pleased with what we serve here. He seated himself at the table and with me, he asked, well, what's on the menu? Well, I said, my favorite dishes, money, academic degrees, and stocks with newspaper articles of fame and fortune as side dishes. These were things I liked, worldly things. I suppose there was nothing radically wrong in any particular item, but it was not the food that that should satisfy the life of a real Christian. When the food was placed before him, he said nothing about it. However, I observed that he did not eat. And I said to him, somewhat disturbed, Master, you you don't care for this food? What's the trouble? Here was his answer. I have meat to eat that you do not know of. Meat that is to do the will of him that sent me. He looked at me again and said, if you want food that really satisfies, seek the will of the Father, not your own pleasures, not your own desires, not your own satisfaction. Seek to please me and that food will satisfy you. And there at the table, he gave me a taste of doing God's will. What a flavor. There's no food like it in all the world. It alone satisfies. Everything else is dissatisfying in the end. Now, if Christ is in your heart and I trust he is, what kind of food are you serving him? And what kind of food are you eating yourself? Are you living for the lust of the flesh and the pride of life selfishly? Or are you choosing God's will for your meat and drink? We walked on next into the living room. This room was rather intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, a quiet atmosphere. He also seemed pleased with it. He said, this indeed is a delightful room. Let us come here often. It is secluded and quiet and we can fellowship together. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes alone with Christ each day. An intimate companionship with him. He promised, I will be here early every morning. Meet me here and we'll start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room. I would take a book of the Bible from the bookcase. He would open it and we would read together. He would tell me of its riches and unfold to me its truths. He would make my heart warm. As he revealed his love and his grace he had toward me. These were wonderful hours together. In fact, we called the living room the withdrawing room. It was a period when we had our quiet time together. But little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I don't know, but I thought it was, it was a life of too much busyness. It wasn't intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss a day now and then. It was an examination, maybe at university. Then it was some other urgent emergency, maybe at work. I would miss it two days in a row and often more. 
I remember one morning when I was in a hurry, rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way as I passed the living room. The door was open. Looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace, and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, He is my guest. I invited him into my heart. He's come as Lord of my home, and yet I'm neglecting him. I turned and I went in. With a downcast glance, I said, Blessed Master, forgive me, have you been here all these mornings? Yeah, he said. I told you I'd be here every morning to meet with you. Then I was even more ashamed, and he had been faithful, and I had been faithless. I asked for his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me, as he does when we are truly repentant. The trouble with you is this. You've been thinking of the quiet time of the Bible study and prayer time as a factor in your own spiritual progress, but you've forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I I love you. I have redeemed you at a great cost. I value your fellowship. Now, he said, do not neglect this hour, if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember, I want your fellowship. You know, the truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he loves me, wants me to be with him, wants to be with me, and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find some time when with your Bible and in prayer you may be together with him. Before long, he asked, You got any kind of work room in your house? Down in the basement of the home of my heart, I had a workbench and some equipment, but I wasn't doing much with it. Once in a while, I would play around with a few little gadgets, but I wasn't producing anything substantial or worthwhile. I let him down there. He looked over the workbench and what little talents and skills I had. He said this, this is quite well furnished. What are you producing with your life for the kingdom of God down here? He looked at one or two little toys that I had thrown together on the bench and held one up to me. Are these little toys all that you're doing for others in your Christian life? Well, I said, Lord, that is the best I can do. I know it isn't much and I really want to do more, but after all, I have no skill or strength to do more. Would you like to do better? He asked. Certainly, I replied. All right. Let me have your hands. Now relax in me and let my spirit work through you. I know that you are unskilled, clumsy maybe, even awkward, but the Holy Spirit is the master worker. And if he controls your hands and your heart, he will work through you. And so stepping around behind me and putting his great strong hands over mine, controlling the tools with his skilled fingers, he began to work through me. There's much more that I must still learn And I'm very far from satisfied with the product that is being turned out. But I do know that whatever has been produced for God has been through his strong hand and through the power of his spirit in me. Do not become discouraged because you cannot do much for God. Your ability is not the fundamental condition or issue. It is he who is controlling your fingers and upon whom you are relying. Give your talents and gifts to God and he will do things with them that will even surprise you. I remember the time when he asked me about the playroom in my heart. I was hoping he would not ask about that. There were certain associations and friendships and activities and amusements that I wanted to keep for myself. I did not think Christ would enjoy them or even approve of them. So I evaded the question in that room. But there came an evening when I was on my way out with some friends and 
As I was about to cross the threshold, he stopped me with a glance and asked, are you you going out? I replied, yes. Good, he said, I'd like to go with you. Oh, I answered rather awkwardly. I don't think, Lord Jesus, that you would really want to go with us. Let's go out tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, we'll go to a prayer meeting. But tonight, I have another appointment. He said, that's all right. Only I thought that when I came into your home, we were going to do everything together. To be close companions. I just want you to know that I'm willing to go with you. Well, I said... We'll go someplace together tomorrow night. That evening, I spent some miserable hours. I felt wretched. What kind of friend was I to Jesus when I was deliberately leaving him out of my associations, doing things and going places that I knew very well he would not enjoy? When I returned that evening, there was a light in his room. And I went up to talk it over with him. Lord, I have learned my lesson. I I can't have a good time without you. From now on... We'll do everything together. Then we went down into the playroom of the house and he transformed it. He brought it into real life, joy, happiness, real satisfaction, new friends, new excitement, new joys. Laughter and music have been ringing through the house ever since. There's just one more matter that I might share with you. One more room. One day I found Jesus waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said, there's a peculiar odor in the house. There's something dead around here, and it's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square. And in the closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about and certainly did not want Christ." To see. I knew they were dead. I knew they were rotting things left over from the old life. And yet, I loved them. And I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit they were even there. Reluctantly, I went up with him and we mounted the stairs. The odor became stronger and stronger and he pointed at the door. It's in there. Some dead thing is in there. I was a little angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-two closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, I think I'm going to stay here on the second floor with this odor. You're mistaken. I'll take my bed outside on the porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that odor. Then I saw him Start down the stairs. You know, when you've come to know the love of Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you'll have to open the closet and you'll have to clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered, took out all the the dying, stinking stuff that was rotting there, and threw it away. Then he cleaned out the closet and painted it, fixed it up, doing it all in what seemed like a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release 
to have that dead thing out of my life. Then a thought came to me. I said to myself, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room and no sooner have I cleaned that then another room gets dirty. I begin on the second room and the first room becomes dusty again. I'm so tired and weary trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I'm just not up to it. So I ventured a question. Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the responsibility of the whole house and operate it for me? And with me just as you did the closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? I could see his face light up as he replied, certainly. That's what I came to do. You can't be the victorious Christian in your own strength. That's impossible. Let me do it through you and for you. That's the way. But, he added slowly, I'm not the owner of this house, am I? I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property isn't really mine. I saw it in a minute. And dropping to my knees, I said, Lord, you've been a guest and I've been the host. From now on, I'm going to be the servant. You're going to be the owner and the master and the Lord. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house describing its assets, liabilities, location, situation, and condition. I eagerly signed it over to belong to him alone for time and eternity. Here, I said, here it is, all that I am and have forever. Now, you run the house. I'll just remain with you as a servant, as a son, and as a friend. I'll be the guest. He took my life that day, and I can give you my word. There's no better way to live the Christian life. He knows how to keep it in shape, and a deep peace settles down in my soul. May Christ settle down and be at home in your heart as Lord of all. Um. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul is going to finish Ephesians chapter 3. It's really the swing passage of the book. He's going to finish it with a prayer, and his prayer is the story I just read you. His prayer is that Christ would not just be a guest in our heart, but that Christ would be fully and completely at home and not just, not just be a renter but he would be the owner. Paul's going to pray that Christ gets complete ownership of your heart. And he's going to say along the way here in this prayer that Christ deserves ownership because of his great love for you. Pray with me. Father God, would you take just the moments we're going to spend in these short verses, in this prayer of the apostle and would you make it a prayer for us the body of Christ at Cornerstone Amen In Ephesians we've seen to this point no commands no commands one commentator said in the first three chapters all you get is the wealth of knowledge of God's grace and love towards us it's just a wealth he just spills out the love of God, and the grace of God. There are no commands. It's just facts about who God is and what He's done for us. 
And so for weeks now, we've just sat back and enjoyed. You've not had to leave here under any, any challenge or even condemnation that, that the Bible has been saying something to you that you're not doing what it's telling you to do. Paul's going to finish this wealth section, all that God has provided for us in his grace through the sacrifice of Christ. He's going to pray out of it, and then he's going to move into what does it look like for us to walk in Christ. And so before he does that, before he starts to go into now the commands, before he starts to go into, okay, now here's what God wants based on the truth that I've already told you, he's going to pray for us, and I'm glad he does. Because essentially what he's going to ask for is impossible on our own. The crux of the Apostle Paul's prayer in chapter 3, 14 through 21, is that he's asking for God to take up residence in our heart. Watch this. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this, For this reason, and you've got to ask yourself, well, what reason are we talking about? It's for every reason that he's given us in chapter 1, 2, and up to this point in 3. If I had to summarize it for you, it's that wealth. What reason are you going to pray these things? He's praying these things because he's, he's given us such an extravagant picture of God's love and grace towards us. We've seen that from Jew to Gentile, God pours grace, apart, uh, uh, pours grace upon us so that we can enjoy it no matter who we are. Whether we're the Apostle Paul or whether we're the Ephesian Gentile. From one extreme to the other, Paul has been making the argument in these three chapters that grace gets extended to all who would receive it. It's available from the top to the bottom. Uh, Like any good preacher, Brother Tommy, if you want to know what the preacher has to say in his message, if you want a good summary, you look at the prayer at the end of the message, right? Because we tend to re-preach the message in the prayer at the end. Have you guys ever noticed that? If you don't get it while I'm saying it for the next 10 minutes, wait till the prayer and I'll try and summarize it up, right? That happens a good bit. That's kind of what Paul does here. And at the very beginning, he starts this way. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Incidentally, I think it's interesting here that he doesn't just bow the knee. He's on both knees. Isn't that good? He falls flat down. There's no pride in this man. He knows where he needs to be. He knows the condition. He knows the posture that we need to be in. And it's down on both knees. And he says, for this reason, because of all the grace that God has extended to us, I fall to my knees before the Father. And then he puts in this verse 15 here. A father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that's the summary prayer part. If you didn't get the first three chapters, where he was going is is that we're all in this under the grace that comes down from the Father. From heaven down to earth, we all, Jew, Gentile, from the Billy Graham to the least of us, We all fall under the name of the Father. We all become children of God on equal footing. And grace gets extended to each one of us equally. None of us were so much better that we only needed a little bit of God's grace. There wasn't a JV and a varsity here. We all were in need of grace. And so here, kind of in his summary, to start the prayer, from whom every family, and that word every in the Greek, sometimes it's translated every, I think better in this situation it should be treated the entire the entire family for this reason i bow my knees before the father from whom the entire family jew gentile all that i've been saying in the previous arguments everyone in heaven and on earth we all fall under his name verse 16 here's his request that he that god the father 
the one we all derive our name from, that the Father would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, not based on anything you've done, but out of His own store, out of His own glorious riches, out of His own benevolence. And the picture here is is that the benevolence of God cannot be plumbed. The depths of His riches are unfathomable. You can't go as deep as the riches of God's glory. It's a phrase he's used several times now in this letter. He's going to ask that God grant us something. And he's going to ask that God grant us something in accordance or in parallel with his riches. Now what he's saying there is, is I'm going to ask God give you something. That he hand it to you. That he gift it to you. And I'm not going to ask that he just give you a little bit of it. I'm going to ask that he give it to you in the same measure to the depths of his glory and grace. And that's unfathomable. It's, it's unmeasurable. It would be, if you, could, if you could hold it, it would be overwhelming. And so I'm going to ask that God give you something to the degree of His glory. You can't even comprehend it. And so what I'm asking Him to give you, I'm asking Him to pour it out upon you to such a degree that it overflows. You get this? I'm not going to ask Him to just give you a taste or even a little bit. I'm going to ask Him to blow you away. What am I asking? I'm going to ask that he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. All right? Now that's going to be the path to the request because we even haven't gotten to the request yet. I'm going to ask that in accordance with his power, he bolster you up from the inside out that the Holy Spirit that he had promised to you when he departed to the heavenlies, that that spirit, his spirit, the way that Christ would commune with us, the way that Christ would walk with us, even though He's at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit would be so strong within us, in our inner constitution, that He could accomplish something else. All right? So you see the steps He's taking here? That He would grant to you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Verse 17, now here's the crux of His request to God. Here's the goal of His prayer so that Christ Himself may dwell in your hearts through faith. That word dwell could also be translated house. It's the Greek word kata oiko. The word oiko is house, and very often just oiko, oikos in its various forms, is used uh, in passages to convey this very idea of house or dwelling place or tabernacle or tent. He doesn't just use the word oikos here. He adds to it and makes it a compound word, kata oikos. Kata means to surround, to envelope, to completely wrap around, okay? So what he's saying here is, is that I'm praying that God grant you, in accordance with his power, to the depths of his glory and grace, that he strengthen you in the inner man via the Holy Spirit, so that Christ might Dwell in your hearts, but not just dwell, not just be a a guest, right? But he would have complete surrounding, encompassing residence that God himself through Jesus Christ would take up abode with you and that he wouldn't be limited to one room or another, that he would kata oiko, he would have full reign and full ownership in the house that is You see where? Your heart. Well, 
And that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Now that is not a request. That is a fact. It's a statement Paul makes. It's not a continuation of the request. The request is, is that God will grant you the strength in accordance with His riches and glory, that through His Spirit in your inner man, that Christ might dwell in the hearts of us as believers through faith. That's the request. And then he makes a statement. The statement is that you, being already finished, completed, done deal, you, meaning all of us, the entire family of God, Jew, Gentile, from the top to the bottom, all of us, check this out, are fact, rooted and grounded in love. He uses really two illustrations here. To be rooted is an agricultural illustration. Picture roots going down from a plant. That's what he's asking. And then he says to be grounded. It's an architectural illustration. And so he, he takes those two illustrations of roots and a foundation. Strong roots and a strong foundation. And he puts them together and he says... Understand, understand, you are rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. It's the truth about you. It's the fact about you. We don't always believe it. But Paul can pray the prayer of the request that God would fill up our hearts, that he would come to dwell in us fully and completely and have full reign in our hearts. He can pray that because what he knows is, is that God has granted to us a rooting and a foundation of his love. Now, he's going to expand upon this. Verse 18, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we let God overflow our hearts and take up full residence within us? How do we do that? We understand that he has rooted us and grounded us in something very specific. It's his love. Now, I want to point out to you here that uh, if you're making an argument for obedience in the church, obedience of the saints, I can't tell you that if I were making up Scripture, this would have been the first place that I go. I don't think it would have been the first place that you go, the love of God. That seems a little soft maybe to us. You know where I would have went? Duty, fear, responsibility. I owe God. He, he demands it of me. But in this great summary prayer, before he ever starts to go into how we now ought to walk with Christ, he wants us to fully know and comprehend that we are to be rooted and grounded so that Christ may fully indwell us, not out of duty, fear, not out of um, responsibility even, but Paul chooses, divinely inspired as he were, to sum it all up in love. What is our great motive for being obedient? What is our great motive for walking this Christian life out in righteousness? It's His overwhelming love. Now watch Him unpack this. Verse 18, that we may be able to comprehend, and He's back into His request, His prayer, that we may be able to comprehend, and the word for comprehend is katalambano. It's a similar compound word to kata oiko. He uses the word kata again, and it means to wrap around, remember? Lambano means literally to throw. And so the idea of comprehend, it means to throw around. If you, had to, if you had to put a picture to it, it would be that we could throw our arms around this great and magnificent idea of God's love. You see it? 
that we may be able to wrap our arms around, throw our arms around with all the saints. He puts that back in there. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles. With all the saints, what is, and maybe you've heard this verse before, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What is our motivation? What are we rooted in? What are we grounded in? Fear of our God? I hope there is a a holy and righteous reverence and fear in each of our hearts for our God. But you know where I, I pray, and I think the Apostle Paul would pray that that reverence and fear is rooted and grounded? In the love of our God. His great love for you ought to scare you to death. Paul says, I pray you can wrap your head around something that really is too big for you to comprehend. And here's what it is. It's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this love of God. The breadth is the inclusiveness of God's love. It's that from Jew to Gentile, from the least to the greatest, from the Billy Grahams to the guy who gets born again just this morning. That is the full inclusiveness of God's grace. From the prostitute to the preacher. From the homosexual to the faithful churchgoer. The grace of God is in its breadth inclusive. There is no one that if God's grace is this great wave crashing off of the beach, there is, there is no one that it cannot fall upon. It's that wide that when you go to the beach and you see that wave, it seems to have no end that way and no end that way. It's that inclusive. That's the breadth of God's love. The length of God's love would be an indication of His patience. How long was it that God was patient with you? How long did He wait? The length of God's love lasted at least 17 years of my life. Coming subtly, waiting, and I'd push away. Coming again, whispering, and I'd push away. God, some of us know very well, is a patient God. That's His length. The height of His love, that's His glory. That's His majesty. And the depth of His love, perhaps you could think about that in terms of the pain and the extent that Christ went to on the cross. These aren't Paul's words. He didn't invent them. If you were here during prayer time, I read them out of the book of Job. Most likely the first book ever written to be Scripture. In the book of Job, the writer, the writer uses these words, and I think Paul borrows them. Job 11. I'll let you go back on your own. One commentator said that this is the John 3.16 in Paul's mind. For God so loved the world, that's the breadth, that He gave His one and only Son. That's the length that He would go to. That's how far He would go. That whosoever should believe in Him should not perish. That's the depths that He pulls us from. But He grants to us eternal life. 
That's the height that he takes us to. Paul says, you know what my prayer is for you? (laughs) That you'd somehow be able to wrap your mind around the great love God has for you. And if you can do that, I know, I trust that he'll fill your heart. He'll overflow your heart. He won't just be secluded to that one room. He'll get it all. Verse 19, and that you would know, this is an odd statement, and that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Essentially, he says that you would know something that you really can't know. Isn't that good? That means, I think, at least two things. This knowledge that is surpassing, I think it means in Paul's mind that you know what can't be known fully, for one. It is, uh, when we put it in parallel to the riches of God's glory, if he were to dump his glory upon us, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't hold it, could we? It would overwhelm us. We'd be lost at sea, so to speak, in the riches of his glory. But that's, that's what he's called upon when he's asked God to grant this to us, that it would be in accordance to the riches of his glory. And so it matches up that he would say that his prayer is that we would know the love of Christ that is to the same extent. It's, it's unknowable. It surpasses our knowing. It also means this, that there's a knowledge of the love of God that doesn't come out of reading. It doesn't come out of class. It doesn't come out of academics. There's a knowledge of the love of God that only comes through a relational experience with Him. Some of you might know what I'm talking about if you've lost loved ones. And God has been there, seemingly the only one there, at the depths of your despair to bring you out. You've Some of you experience the love of God in ways that you cannot explain to other people. God has extended his love to you at times in your life through the relationship he has with you via that Holy Spirit that Paul's already mentioned that strengthens you from the inside out. And now you know a love that is unknowable. It's unteachable. It's unexplainable. I think of the verse in Philippians 4. Paul says that in those times, there's a peace that comes from God that, what, surpasses all comprehension and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is he praying all this? That you might be filled up to the fullness of God, that we would become a replica of him, a reflection for him in this world, that God would so out of His growing love in us, He would so overflow our lives that we would begin to reflect His love in this world. And so, when the world looks into the church, what ought they see? They ought to see this love, this unexplainable, uncomparable, divine love leaking out of this place through you, through you, through me. In such ways that it, that it begins to capture their hearts and say something to them about the God who has created them. That's Paul's prayer. That's Paul's prayer. It sounds impossible, doesn't it? Paul knows this, I think, and so he, he ends with a benediction of sorts. He says, Now to him who is able... Because by the time you get to uh, verse 20, you should be thinking to yourself, 
I, I can't do that. Uh, there are parts of my heart that I haven't been able to turn over the key to. I long for God to take up full residence. I long to hand Him the deed title to my life in whole. There's still parts that I'm reserving for myself. There's still, still times when I go out without Him. And there, there's even still maybe that closet where I hope He never even looks. Luckily, Paul finishes his prayer this way. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I want you to notice the redundance right there. He doesn't just pray that God, who is able to do this, that God do more than we think. That's not all he says. He says, not only do I ask that he do more than you think, I I ask that he do more than you think or even ask. But he doesn't stop there. I pray that God, who is able to do more than you think or ask, that he do it beyond all that you could ask or think. And not just beyond all that you could ask or think, but that he do it abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think. And not just that, but he do it far more abundantly and beyond all that you could ask or think. Do we need God's help? We sure do. I know I do. This is... This is Paul's prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. What is the power that works within us? It's Christ in us. Through the Holy Spirit of God. To him be the glory in the church. Paul doesn't throw the word church out there very often. So I think it's, it's important for us to notice. To him in the church be the glory because he's the one able to do all that I'm asking, all that we're thinking. And he's actually able to do far more and abundantly beyond all that you would imagine or even think to ask him to do. He can do it. And he can do it in you and he can do it in me. So to him be the glory in the church. And to him be the glory in Christ Jesus, not in just Paul's generation, but in generations forever and forever, and forever. And Paul says, Amen. And the prayer of this pastor is that your heart says, Amen. That your heart says, I agree, Paul. And that is my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we ask that... Um, that you wouldn't just come visit with us. We don't want you just to be our guest on Sundays. We want you to come with us into Monday and Tuesday. And we actually want you to, to have the title deed to our heart and life. We want you to have control over every room. And Paul's prayer is our prayer. That you may dwell fully and completely, that you may take up residence in our hearts. Give us the faith to allow you to do that. Help us to know that we are rooted and grounded in your love, a love we can't comprehend, a love that is all-inclusive to all the saints, a love that has a breadth and a length and a height and a depth that is beyond our understanding.
and a love that surpasses human comprehension. Lord, fill us up to the fullness and we will give you the glory because you are more than able to accomplish what we pray for. You're more than able. Lord, we want you. We want you in in full fellowship. Lord, maybe, maybe we have rooms that we've not let you into yet. Maybe we try and keep you out of the basement of our life. Maybe we would rather you not look into the attic. But to experience the joy that Paul was able to experience, we've got to let you in. And so this morning, my prayer for the flock is that they would open every door and they would give you full access. And that they would realize a joy and fellowship with you that um, maybe they've never known before. And for the one who has never invited you at all, by your grace, Father, extend to them, extend to them the calling, the drawing, tug on the heart strings, Lord. Perhaps this is the first time that they've, they've heard of a God who would love them to this extent. Perhaps this morning it's the first time that their heart has heard of a God that would love them to this extent. Would you kick the door open? Do it with your love, Lord. Overwhelm us with your love this morning. Wherever we are in relationship to you, whether we are afar off this morning or whether we are as near as we've ever been, we long to be nearer. So we pray that we would come closer to Jesus this morning. And it's in his name we pray, who is our cornerstone. Amen and amen. Hey, why don't you stand? We're going to sing, we're going to sing one more song. And uh, as always, you, you need not sing. You can stand there and just listen for God. Or you can seek in the words the place that the Holy Spirit would, uh, would have you rest. Or you could ask that through the Holy Spirit, Christ would fill you to a new degree. And I'll be praying on behalf of this flock that God would, uh, through Jesus, be nearer to you than he ever has been. And I'll just tell you for myself, um, that's been my prayer kind of all night long as I've been reviewing this message. Lord Jesus, uh, I, don't, I don't know you as well as I want to. And maybe you're at a place where you need to pray this prayer. God, my want to seems to be failing right now. Maybe there's a dullness of spirit that is even causing you to, to have a lack of desire to want to to fellowship with your Father. So maybe your prayer needs to start, God, give me, give me a heart that longs after you, that, that, that pants after you. And I'll be praying that for you. Why don't we sing before we're dismissed?
Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.